Well, we're continuing the series here on the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you wanted to continue to follow along with us, we're in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. So Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that the... Excuse me, let me start over. Again... You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill those vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Um, Emily and I had just gotten married. Um, I had just gotten uh, a, a new vehicle, and if, if you've ever gotten to know my family, you know that a new vehicle is anything 10 years or older. So it was like a 1997 Dodge Stratus, and, and when we got it, you could feel the brakes going out. You know, but they still worked. They were just going out. You could feel it. And, and I thought to myself, I wanted to save us money because we were just married. We were still looking for, for our career job, so to speak. And so I decided I was going to work on the vehicle by myself because I had fixed brakes before, once before, once, one single time before I did it. So I thought, surely I'm as good as a mechanic. I'll take a shot at this. And, and I opened it up. And if, if, for anybody that's thinking about doing their own brakes on a vehicle from the 1990s, um, let me just say there are two different kinds of brake systems that I found out. There are the brake pads that set right in, and that's all it is. You pull the caliper out, you take the brake pads, you put it in, and, and you set it back over. Easy peasy. That's the brakes I worked on before. I pulled these apart. And it was the most bizarre setup. I can't even describe to you because there was a spring and you had to pull and twist. And then to get the new pad on there, you had to push and twist again. And I just, I couldn't figure it out. But I had a mechanic in the area that, that would always take my vehicle. And so I thought, well, I'll just call Brian. And so I tried to put the brakes back together. Keyword try. And I thought I set something in right, and I thought, it's okay, I got three other brakes, that's fine. <laughs> so I drove, and, and I got there to the mechanic, and I told him what was going on, and he said, no problem, I'll take a look. About an hour later, he gave me a call, and, and he said to me, you could have killed yourself. And what did I say? What are you talking about? And he said, in a very stern voice, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I said, I know. And it turned out I did not put a bolt all the way in. And in my mind, I thought, that's okay. There's other bolts that are in. That'll be fine. And when he took it apart, he said, it is a miracle that you didn't crash on the way here because that could have seized up. And I look back on that moment and I think to myself, why did I lie? He knew what was going on. He, he knew. He had it in front of him. And, and obviously, he knows more about brakes than I do. Why did I lie to him 
about saying, well, I don't know. What do you mean? What do you mean I didn't put the bolt in all the way on top of the caliper? You know, what, what do you mean? And, and it makes me think often, why do we sometimes lie? Uh, psychology has done stats on this for, for decades, and what they found is, is an overwhelming amount of people will admit that they lie, which I find interesting that people will tell the truth that they do lie. But in any case, uh, it's just, it's, it's rather pervasive. And so psychology has looked into this and has tried to find out why do people feel the need to lie about themselves. And what they found is people have a tendency to lie about themselves because they have a low self-esteem or a low view of their self-worth especially when they start comparing themselves to other people. And so, I'll give myself as, as an example again. I thought I could work on brakes. I found out I couldn't work on brakes. My self-esteem with mechanics went down. I didn't want that self-esteem to go any lower, and so when my, my mechanic said, you made a mistake and you know it, my first reaction was, I need to lie about this, so he doesn't think any less of me than what he could. Of course, he knew the full truth, and so he kept pushing for it. But we have a tendency in our personal lives to lie, or we might call it stretching the truth a little bit. Uh, yesterday was deer season. I, I'm not going to make anyone raise their hands as to how big of a buck you got, but there are some people out there that maybe shot a four-point buck and over time, the story was, well, it was a four-point, but it was a big four-point. Well, it was a four-point, but I saw a little nub on one side, so I technically got a five-point, and it was big. I got a five-point buck, massive, and when I shot him, he dropped. I didn't have to go searching for him at all. How many times have we heard that story and you hear the story over and over and you think this story is getting bigger and better every time I hear it? We have a tendency to do that because we want to inflate the self. We want to make sure that people see ourselves better than what we really are. And believe it or not, this isn't just a modern problem. This has been here since the very beginning, since the fall of man Humanity has been lying about themselves in order to inflate themselves and make themselves look better. One of the ways that they have done this is by swearing an oath or a vow to the God that they serve. And this is usually what would happen. It, it, it was really pervasive in pagan society. And that was that you would strike a deal with somebody but you would need somebody else to back up that deal. And so what they would do is they would bring their household idol or their household god and set it before them, and they would make a deal with one another. And so somebody would say, I will give you, I don't know, this much grain if you give me this much livestock, and my god here will help me grow the grain that I need to give you, and if I don't give you that grain... This God will hold me accountable. And this was a very common practice because you needed sort of a co-signer to whatever loan you were taking out with somebody or, or you needed something to back you up. And so what better way to back up your promise to another person to, than to get God involved in it? And that was the idea that the pagans had is if I could bring my household God and, and this person could see 
just how spectacular he is, and if I could tell him stories about all the things that he's helped me accomplish, then maybe he'll strike a deal with me and this God will have my back. Well, you see the problem with this for Israel? Israel is surrounded by a pagan society and they learn this just as bartering. This is an everyday occurrence that occurs between two parties down at the market. And so Israel is learning about this. And what do they start to do? Well, they know that the idol isn't real. They're confident that the idol cannot follow through on any uh, vow or oath that is made. So what Israel starts to do is they start calling on God to cover their oaths and vows. And they start bringing God into the picture and saying, see, look what God did last year during the harvest. Wasn't that incredible? He'll do it again this year so you can assure me your livestock, I can assure you the crop by the name of God. Well, God was not appreciating this because all of a sudden he's being brought into scenarios and being told that he's going to cover whatever is being done and, and he's sitting back saying, did you even ask me if that was okay? And so God establishes the law. And we've talked about this a little bit, that the law is good. When God gives Israel the law, it is meant to guide their behavior. It is meant to make sure that people know what actions are right and what actions are wrong. And so when God gives Israel the law, one of the concerns that he has for them is that they would not use his name in vain and they would not make a false witness of themselves. So what does that mean? Well, for one, it means with taking oaths or vows with God in the room, God is saying to them, don't make an oath in my name and expect me not to hold you accountable to it. Do you see the difference? They would make oaths and vows with their idols and expect the God to, to provide for them whatever oath or vow they've made. God steps into the picture with the law and he says, hold on a moment, if you're going to have me in the room when you make an oath or a vow, it's not that I'm going to cover your oath or vow, it's that I'm going to hold you accountable. That's going to be a little more tough to make the oath or vow, right? Because now you're not saying, hey, God is so big, so strong, he'll cover whatever I can't provide you. No, now you're saying God is so big and so strong, if I don't follow through on my oath, he will hold me accountable to what I promised you. And not only does God have this, this call to not take his name in vain, not to just use it randomly, but he actually has laws throughout the Old Testament, Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, where he is specifically telling his people, if you use my name in an oath, I will hold you accountable. My name is holy. You will not use it for selfish purposes. And so as he's telling Israel this, he's guiding their behavior and he's trying to make sure that they're not just saying, oh yeah, uh, I swear an oath by Yahweh that, that I will cover my side of the deal. Everything good? Okay, everything's good. Great, let's sign the dotted line here. No, God is saying, if you're going to use my name in that sentence, you better take it seriously which means you better make sure you have the livestock to cover the deal. You better make sure you have the money necessary to pay for whatever it is you just made a vow to pay. And God is making sure, on the other hand, not just that his name is kept holy and not just used willy-nilly, but that people would be living honestly, that they wouldn't try to broker a deal that they can't cover 
They won't try to gamble away what their family has. But they would go into a deal, they would make an oath, they would make a vow with honesty. So that's what the law established. But here's the problem, and and, and we've talked about this the last few weeks. The law is good, but the law cannot change the heart. You see, we have a problem as humans. We have original sin. We were born with it. We were born into a sinful, sinful world. We were born with sin in our heart. God has forgiven us. God is cleansing us. God is washing away that sin. But there's still the bent that we have that the law can't fix. So Jesus notices this when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he notices, and, and he says this at various times in his Sermon on the Mount and various times in his ministry, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, is what he says. And what he notices is that God's people are going back to the old ways of brokering a deal. God's people are going back to the point of saying, well, I swear in God's name that that I will cover this. And what they started to add to it was not just God's name. They would add other things that God owns. So they would say, I I swear by God that I'll cover uh, whatever it is I promise you. And then they would go on to say, well, I swear by, uh, by heaven that that, uh, that I'll cover whatever I owe you. So not just God, now we're swearing by where God lives. And then they say, well, I swear by the city of Jerusalem. So if I don't cover my end of the bargain, the city of Jerusalem will be at stake. What's the problem with this? Do we have any ownership over God? Do we have any ownership over heaven? Any ownership over the temple? No, we don't have any ownership over any of that. And Jesus points out, when you swear by God's name or you swear by heaven or you even swear by earth or swear by the temple, you are taking something that you have no authority over and you're trying to claim that they're the ones that are going to cover you. I'll give you an example of what this would look like in God's eyes and what Jesus is trying to point out. Vern, I know that you drove here today, right? Yeah, Vern drove here today, so I know he has a vehicle in the parking lot. Can I borrow it? Okay, do you got the keys? You don't have the keys? Oh, man, he knew I was coming. (laughs) So let's say, though, after service, Vern goes to give me the keys to his car. Is he going to trust me with that car? Generally speaking, I'm I'm sure he would trust me with that car. But then he might ask the question, well, how long do you need it? How long are you going to use it for? Do you have insurance? You know, those kinds of questions. And and I would say to him, Vern, it's okay. It's it's all right. I'm a great driver. Only one accident in the last month and a half. I'm a great driver. Don't worry. And in fact, Vern, if I don't bring your car back, Ashley here will take care of you. Don't you worry about a thing. Ashley has a one. In fact, Ashley just said that she was thankful for her job when we were greeting one another. So she has a job. She'll cover the car so you can hand over the keys. That's okay, right? Yeah, absolutely. What's the problem with that? I'm I'm making Ashley broker a deal for me without her consent. 
I'm going to Vern for something that I need covered, and I'm saying somebody else will take care of it. What Jesus is pointing out in his day is, when you start to bring God into the picture, you're trying to have control over him as if, though, you can tell him what to do. Has anyone ever tried to tell God what to do? Don't try. Just don't. It doesn't work out. And Jesus is saying, by, by swearing an oath in the name of God, by swearing an oath in the name of the city, anything like that, that is all God's. And then Jesus even says, don't even swear an oath by your head. So don't say, on my life, I swear, because you don't even have ownership over yourself. You're part of God's creation. Who are you to gamble your life away from your creator? So this is a problem that Jesus is pointing out to his people. Dallas Willard, uh, uh, he was a philosophy professor at at, uh, University of Wisconsin for a number of years. He's written a number of books. One of them is called Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, he goes through the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the points he makes about this part of Jesus' ministry where he calls out the, the oaths and the vows that people would make is he said, the real problem wasn't just that they were taking God's name in vain and they were trying to have ownership over him, but they were doing so to trick one another out of their assets. They were doing so to try to trick somebody into giving up something that they couldn't pay back. What does that remind you of? Well, it reminds you of what the pagans did with the idols. Let me try to explain to you how great and amazing my God is so that if I don't pay this back, you can just go to him and he'll write you the check. And all of a sudden, people are hearing from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law that it's okay, I'm I'm a servant of God. You can trust me with this. God will take care of it. And pretty soon, people are being taken advantage of. People are not able to live in a right relationship because one of their leaders has taken advantage of them, has used the name of God to trick them out of their assets. And so what's Jesus' solution to this? It's actually very simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Be honest. You know, where the law was given all of these procedures about uh, when you take an oath, make sure that you take it in this way and, and I will hold you accountable. Jesus says, let's set that aside for a moment and just say, what would life look like if you lived honestly? What would it look like if your yes really meant yes and your no really meant no? Hey, I need to trade some grain for some livestock to make it through the end of the harvest. Could I get that livestock now so that I can finish the harvest? Well, do you actually think you're going to have enough grain to give me at the end of the harvest? The old way would say, well, don't worry about that. God will take care of it. Jesus' words say, you would answer, no, I, I don't think I have enough grain. And what does that open the door to? Charitable giving love for one another, respect for one another, being able to say, I appreciate your honesty. 
being able to look at one another and, and actually consider helping one another, not trying to take advantage. I had an issue uh, at one point in my ministry where I had a young man who uh, just, just had a horrible reputation for lying. And, and it got to the point where I knew he was lying because he was talking to me. But he was trying. He, he, he was trying to connect with the church. He was trying to come in, but he would constantly be offended that people would think he was lying. And I finally had to say to him, listen, you have a reputation that you have to get over. And he said, well, how do I, I try to explain to people I'm not lying anymore. And I said to him, you don't need to explain that you're not lying. You just need to live honestly. You just need to live in such a way that people don't have to question your behavior. And that's the kind of call that we have as Christians. So where do we go with, with this teaching of Jesus? Well, first of all, I know when I read this passage, there gets to be a concern of, well, are we not allowed to make oaths or vows in our personal lives? And the answer is, that's not anything we need to worry about. Because if you're married here, and Pastor Mark uh, gave this as examples last week, that we take verbal oaths with one another in our relationships. So if you're married, you more likely than not have gone through wedding vows, right? You stood up before the church, before the minister, and you made vows to one another that you would keep. Uh, if, you are, if you have ever been in a courtroom and have had to testify as a witness, what do you do? You get up there, put your hand on the Bible. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Those oaths are fine to take. We don't need to worry about that. Jesus is not trying to set up a to-do list that says, no more doing this, you can only do that. He's getting to the heart of the problem. And what's the heart of the problem? It's not whether or not we take oaths or vows. The heart of the problem is, are we doing so with honesty and integrity? So the reality is, we can't enter into a relationship and then expect God to come in like a pagan idol and bless it. Rather, it's the other way around. As Christians, God is the one that leads us and guides us wherever we go. So now, whatever deal we go into, we should be trusting, is this the deal that God has called me to make? Is this the decision that God is telling me he'll make with me? That's when, we make, uh, that's when we make a deal with honesty is when we ask God first, what should I do? And God tells us. And the other idea that we go out as Christians is, is simply this. By now, in your Christian life, people should know that you're a Christian, those that are around you. Christianity is personal. It's never private. You should be living your Christian life out loud. So when people see you, they know you're a follower of Jesus Christ. What they should also know is you're an honest person. You're somebody that is a representation of God, and so you live honestly and with integrity. That is one of the ways that we call people into the Christian life, is being able to live this from the center of the heart where God is leading us in such a way that people see it and say, I want to be like that. I want to live like that person lives. 
This is God's work within us, that our yes would be yes, our no would be no. We live with honesty, we live with integrity of a world that doesn't fully understand it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your calling uh, in our lives to live honestly. And God, we, we thank you for, for your truthfulness in our life, that you would speak the truth to us, that you would uh, allow us to live like you are. God, we pray that, uh, that as we leave this place, that you would go before us. We pray, God, that, that you would be the one guiding our decision-making, that you would be the one helping us to live honestly, to tell the truth, uh, to live with integrity. We know you will do it. Amen.